from WDBM East Lansing. This is City Pulse on the Air. Joining you now, your Editor-in-Chief of the Lansing City Pulse, Burl Schwartz. Hello again, this is Burl Schwartz talking. Later, we'll check in with MSU political scientist Matt Grossman on what's new in the 2020 presidential campaign. And then Rich Tupico will guide us once again down Michigan's musical memory lane. First, though, the current issue of City Pulse is our annual gay pride issue. It features a Q&A with the new and openly gay president of Western Michigan University Cooley Law School, James McGrath. President McGrath, McGrath rather, recounts for me his role in some of the most prominent acts of civil disobedience in the 1980s in the fight to bring attention to the growing AIDS crisis. Before we get to, the, get to that, though, I became acquainted with President McGrath over the winter when he spoke to the Rotary Club of Lansing. That's a somewhat conservative group of community leaders and business people, so he definitely captured my attention when he matter-of-factly told the audience that he's gay. I asked him why he included such a personal detail. So I don't know if you noticed, um, some people say my ego knows no bounds. I do uh, the first four or five slides, I do about me. So I get people to know who I am. And a very important part of me is my family. And it's hard to hide the fact that I'm gay when I have a husband and a little seven-year-old daughter. Uh, it calls into question, you know, wait a minute. So I just, I also think it's really important for gay people to be out because it just makes it so much easier for others who are struggling with their identity. And so uh, I would like to talk to you about uh, struggling with your own identity and how you dealt with coming out. Sure. So again, I came out a long time ago. And when how, I was- How old are you? I'm 63. Okay. So when I was in high school, there were not a lot of, uh, there were not any positive role models. Uh, being gay was virtually a crime. Doing anything, you know, homosexual was certainly a crime in most places. And, you know, I, the only images I had of gay people in my head or from, you know, talking with people were a very, you know, a men who were more like women. And, you know, not that there's anything wrong with it, but I just didn't identify that way. And I thought, well, I'm not gay, but I don't know what I am. Something's different about me. And I went back and forth in high school thinking about what that was and what that meant. And, you know, then I joined the Air Force right after high school. And what a great place to, you know, question your sexuality. You're, you're put in a room with 50 other men and dressing with them, showering with them. And it's like, dawned on me that I did have an attraction to other men. And I wasn't the only one who sought refuge in the military, uh, struggling with their sexual identity issues. And it was very easy to meet other, you know, gay men in the military. And I had my first crush, my first boyfriend, my first kiss uh, was in the military. And at the time, there's no such thing as don't ask, don't tell. If you were found out, if there could be serious circumstances. Um, but they did ask, and I told. And so my career was cut short. Uh, so I just about finished three years. But because I'd been, I think, a fairly exemplary, uh, you know, young airman, I uh, had a medal for, you know, conduct and uh, not just a good conduct medal, but uh, a, a, cup, a medal for some you know, superior service. I was given an honorable discharge and, you know, it was really fortuitous in that I was kind of ready to get out of the military. I discovered what's different about me is that I'm gay and there's a whole gay world out there. 
and I wanted to go back to school. I was ready finally to go to college. I didn't do too well in high school because I, I really was kind of a rebel. I was kind of struggling with my whole identity and it kind of came out in weird ways, like, you know, just being very rebellious, getting alcohol at a young age and things like that. Being gay in high school is no easy thing, uh, but being anything in high school is not easy. Uh, but uh, you said you acted out. Yeah, I was, um, I was definitely a um, juvenile delinquent of sorts. I'm not proud. I'm not going to recite some things that I did that I'm not very proud of, but I was very, you know, destructive and self-destructive as well. Hmm. Did a lot of things to get attention. And do you think that was because you were struggling with your sexual orientation? I think so. It might just be because I'm kind of a jerk, but I think it's the former. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I thought it would be funny to drive my car down the corridor into the lunchroom uh, because it was a Volkswagen and it would fit. That kind of thing, just to get attention. And I don't know. Yeah. I, I think it was all related. That, that was the, the most harmless thing I did. There's other things I'm not so proud of. <laughs> not that I'm proud of that. Now for James McGrath's role in the AIDS protest movement. After President McGrath's stints in the Air Force, he became the owner of a rock club in Providence, Rhode Island, where he introduced a gay night. That was in the early 1980s when the AIDS crisis hit. You know, I started hearing about gay cancer, and then they called it gay-related immunodeficiency disease, GRID. And, um, and I had this friend, Richard, we have this kind of love-hate thing going on, and and he had just met someone who he called the love of his life. And he was from New Haven because he was, you know, a Yale student. And, you know, he would go down to see him on the weekends. It's not too far from Rhode Island, um, New Haven, Connecticut. And just about two weeks into the relationship, he said, oh, I got to go down to New Haven this weekend. My new boyfriend is, is he's got pneumonia. He's in the hospital. I'm like, oh, that's, that's terrible. I said, that's just like you, Richard. One minute you're marrying them. And next minute you're burying them. And he just laughed and we laughed. But he is... You know, he actually died a few weeks later uh, because at the time we, you know, people live a long time with HIV disease, you know, if they, they're treated properly. But back then people were infected long before they showed any symptoms. And so people were dropping dead really fast. And so I was, oh, I, I could not believe I had said that. And by the way, he has never let me forget it. Um, and we started doing things at the club, some kind of benefits. We had Artists Against AIDS, our own little local one. We did all sorts of dance benefits to raise money for people who were afflicted with HIV. But it was like a drop in the bucket. Things were so expensive. Um, the only medicine that, that could treat HIV disease was AZT, which cost $10,000 per year per patient. And so I got very angry and um, heard about this group in New York called ACT UP. And they were doing these great demonstrations and you know, really putting the public spotlight on the government's inaction against this epidemic. When Legionnaires disease came out, like a dozen Legionnaires were afflicted. They swung into action and we had a cure in no time. But oh, it's, it's gay men, I don't know, it's some Haitian men. So we have you know, you know, gay men and black men who were dying of this disease. Not, not so fast to, to get in, swing into action. Um, it was years before the president even said the word AIDS. Uh, so we were very upset and angry. And then we had a local group in Rhode Island start too. And a lot of places around the country were starting ACT UPS. Sometimes they call them ACT NOWs. And ours was started by these uh, gentlemen and a couple of uh, women from Brown University and really smart, really bright people. And I love working with them. I, again, 
had a year and a half in college where I was just doing performance classes. Uh, I was not as well read. They really didn't have much of an opinion of my intellect. Uh, I had an opinion, but it wasn't very positive. And so they kind of tolerated me because they gave them a space to meet. And um, they, they were calling themselves ACT Now. And after about six weeks, I said, you know, you need to change your name to ACT Up. And they said, why? And they said, because it's been six weeks and you haven't done a damn thing. So you're not really acting now. So we need to change the name. And they did. And um, they said, well, what, what ideas do you have? And mine were kind of grown out of the, my New York experience. I would go every Monday to ACT UP New York's meetings at the uh, Gay, Center, Gay, uh, Gay Community Center. And it's like three and a half hours to get there. So it was kind of a, kind of a trek, but it was worth it. And once in a while, if I could afford a a cheap flight I would fly down, but mostly it was driving down. And I came back with just great ideas. And so one of the things we started doing um, was our own little, we call them art campaigns, because the public health department in Rhode Island had decided to do mandatory HIV testing reporting. So if you got a test, it was reported that you, number one, tested, and then whether it was positive or negative, everybody knew pretty much you were either worried you were gay or you were worried you were Haitian, uh, which is a problem. And then it, it, was, it was keeping people from getting the test. And so we, we fought against that. We uh, did a sit-in in the governor's office um, and we were arrested because that's the whole point of nonviolent civil disobedience. You get arrested, media attention on you. We're doing things like that. And then finally, um, my art projects. So we had big billboards all over the state that said, you know, uh, call this number for testing. You know, and it sounded very caring but they were going to track, track you. And so we went around at night and painted over the phone number of all of those billboards, uh, little art projects like that. And my favorite was at the, Rhode Island's a small state, so it was easier to do than most states. At the border, there's a big sign that says, welcome to Rhode Island, the ocean state. And we, we actually had these big metal plates we riveted on that said, uh, instead of the ocean state, it says home of mandatory HIV testing. Um, so those were our art projects. So going to New York every week, I happen, you know, some, some of my friends call me either Zelig or Forrest Gump because I kind of get myself into situations just by being there. And I ended up sitting there, Peter Staley, who's now very, very famous. He's, you can read about him in the Smithsonian Museum. He's, he's featured in many books, How to Survive a Plague. A great guy, just amazing uh, activist and other people as well. Um, and I became part of his little group called the Power Tools. And they were named that way because on one of our, um, our uh, what, actions, let's say it's a small subgroup of ACT UP. ACT UP would get hundreds and hundreds of people to go to demonstrations, but we were a small group that would infiltrate. So we went to Burroughs Welcome, the drug company that made AZT, to try to shine a spotlight on the high cost of the drug. And what we did is we, we went in as if we had an appointment with someone. And while the receptionist was trying to find someone, we snuck into an elevator and took over a suite of offices on the second floor. And my job with, with the power tools was to put metal plates uh, into the door and into the frame so that no one could get in. We barricaded ourselves in a suite of offices. And the idea was to smash out the windows and put up a big banner that said, here profiteering, people are dying, Burroughs Welcome is, you know, I forgot, I forgot everything except the here profiteering. And unfortunately, everybody said, what, do you, what are all these tools you're bringing? And I said, well, 
I want to be ready for anything. And they thought we could just smash out the windows by picking up a file cabinet. Turns out you can't. Those things have a lot of spring back. And so they would just bounce off. I was going to knock out the windows at the corners with the hammer, but I didn't have one. So we never got the windows out, but we did hold a press conference and we did get a lot of uh, exposure for that. I think our most famous um, action though was at the New York Stock Exchange. So again, Burroughs Welcome wasn't actually publicly traded, but there was a way to, um, to trade interest in Burroughs Welcome. So we again staged a demonstration at the New York Stock Exchange. And I'm sure you're all familiar on opening day, I mean, at the opening bell, sometimes they'll have an IPO featured and they'll be standing on that balcony with the clock and everybody's so happy. And so we went in on a day when that was not happening. And we dressed what we called in business drag, which was just a suit with a little pin that said, I was from Bear Stearns, other people from other companies. And um, we snuck in with a few photographers that were gonna uh, take pictures because there's no pictures allowed in there, they had smaller cameras. And we went up in the balcony just a few minutes before the bell and three minutes exactly before the bell went off, we, sh we pulled the uh, trigger on air horns and it was deafening. There's five of us up, six of us up there and the air horns went for five full minutes. We had timed it of course and nobody heard the starting bell, but people were furious and they were yelling at us, what are you doing? And we have a big banner up. I, I believe it either said act up or profiteering. Either way, they were incensed by it. And um, we started throwing out these fake $100 bills that had a message about Boros Welcome on them. And the people were not in any way positive about this action and uh, were trying to get at us to probably kill us. So I was so relieved when the police showed up this time because we had handcuffed ourselves to the balcony and we had no keys. So I was glad to see the police. Uh, luckily, we, we had regulation handcuffs. They were able to extricate us from the balcony and get us out. Even the people were trying to hit us, but we, we, got out, we all got out alive. There's much more in my interview with James McGrath, including his memories of the late, great Larry Kramer on our website. You can also read excerpts of this interview in the current issue, our annual Gay Pride issue, which is available to pick up in 200 locations until Wednesday. But it's also in our digital edition on our website at lansingcitypulse.com. And you can be the first to get the digital edition via our newsletter. If you're not signed up for it, uh, you can do that as well at lansingcitypulse.com. And you are listening to City Pulse here on 88.9 FM WDBM at Michigan State University. I'm Burl Schwartz. Now our weekly check-in with MSU political scientist Matt Grossman on the 2020 presidential campaign. Matt, what's on your political radar today? Well, the Biden surge is continuing, and he is uh, bringing along Democratic Senate candidates uh, with him. And the few uh, positives that uh, President Trump had going for him uh, do not seem to be holding up. Let's flesh those out a bit. Uh, what's happening in these swing states? Well, pretty much across the board, uh, Donald Trump is losing a bit, and uh, Joe Biden is gaining a bit. Uh, he seems to be gaining pretty much across the board, though it's concentrated among uh, white voters, surprisingly older voters. And uh, Senate candidates are similarly right alongside uh, Biden, uh, even where you might think people had a chance to differentiate themselves from Trump. Uh, they, they really aren't doing it. 
What do you think has changed with older voters? Uh, it is uh, a puzzle because, uh, in general, uh, as people age, they uh, tend to have uh, more stable political beliefs. They uh, tend not to change if they've been uh, voting the same way in presidential elections for a while. So it is a surprise. But they do tend to be people who are uh, sort of generally more, a little more culturally conservative, um, but hold pretty liberal policy positions. Uh, so they're sort of kind of in the middle uh, ideologically, and it appears that they were scared off by Hillary Clinton, but not necessarily scared off by Joe Biden. How important are older voters to getting elected? Uh, they're extremely important because uh, Florida uh, is a, a very much older uh, state. Uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania are much older on average states. And so uh, some of the main battlegrounds uh, are states uh, that have disproportionately older uh, white voters, and those are states uh, that Hillary Clinton did, did worse in, in part because she did uh, poorly among old, older voters, and Biden seems to be winning them back. I've heard some talk about Biden could get 375 to 400 electoral votes. Is that landslide territory? <laughs> well, it's a uh, not time to uh, order all of the, the party decorations uh, yet. Um, there is a long way to go, and I think it's unlikely that it will continue to go higher. Um, we're in a polarized country. Even Obama uh, in 2008, at the, at the, in the middle of a, a economic uh, downfall, um, you know, still only won by eight points, and still, although he won all of the swing states and a couple of extras in Indiana and North Carolina. Um, it wasn't overwhelming. So I think it's still going to be difficult for um, anybody to, to reach those levels that we saw, say, in Reagan in 1984, uh, or like we've talked about in 1964 and 1972, where uh, one uh, person won by 23 percentage points. We're not going back to that era. What do you think is Trump's strategy now, or do you think he has a strategy now? Well, the problem is that uh, it, it, the best strategy is to focus on Joe Biden um, because he's the more unknown quantity, and um, people have already made up their opinions about, uh, made up their minds about Donald Trump. Um, and so he needs to win people who don't like him, um, but might be able to be convinced that they like Joe Biden even less. Um, but he can't really focus on Joe Biden. He likes the attention to be on himself, um, and that's just not a winning strategy. Uh, he needs to make it into a choice, um, and he's uh, helping everyone make it a, refer a referendum on him. Is what he is doing only appealing <clears throat> to his base, from what you can tell, and where is that going to leave him? Well, it's not that there aren't any openings. Um, you know, even in the Black Lives Matter protests, we've talked about um, you know, some uh, looting. Uh, we've talked about some uh, emphasis on uh, statues coming down that, that might uh, not be as unpopular as the Confederate monument. Um, and so he has a, the opportunity uh, to talk about the levels going too far. Uh, he has a chance to, to talk about uh, law and order. Um, but, you know, that would have to be uh, backed up uh, with with something. And it would also have to come with the kind of traditional, um, normal presidential actions um, that he doesn't seem as capable of. 
uh, and uh, I don't think he's been able to take advantage of those so far. From what you see, is he off his game? He seemed he didn't seem like the same Donald Trump as uh, from three and a half years ago at that uh, rally in Tulsa. Well, um, I think he was obviously um, surprised uh, by the uh, relatively low attendance at the rally, um, and that may have uh, changed his his demeanor. Um, He isn't one who is able to kind of hide his internal emotions, uh, and so we see them on full display, uh, however he is uh, feeling, uh, and that may have been to his detriment. Um, but I think the, the surprise still is that the, the, the basement Biden campaign is, is going well. Uh, it's not that he hasn't been out at all, but he really has not been very visible. And that's been among the best things going for him. Uh, so why, do, why do you say that's among the best things going for him? It, it just seems that uh, uh, Donald Trump is unpopular. Uh, people aren't scared about Joe Biden. They're not especially excited about Joe Biden. I think the numbers were that there were twice as many people with strongly favorable opinions um, for Donald Trump and uh, even more for strongly unfavorable opinions for uh, Donald Trump. So people just have a meh opinion about Joe Biden and uh, that uh, opinion versus strongly negative for for Trump um, is so far winning him a lot of votes. So is Biden's best strategy at this point as far as public efforts to lay low? I think it could change if the Trump campaign, uh, at least the advertising campaign, is able to start raising some negatives about Joe Biden. In that case, uh, I think he'll he'll really have to uh, you know, demonstrate more of a positive message. Uh, there's some research which tested 120 messages, I think we talked about it, where uh, they show that both positive and negative messages about Joe Biden are more influential than positive or negative messages about Donald Trump. Um, so it's not that there's nothing that can move those numbers, but while Trump is keeping the conversation on himself, um, it doesn't really help Biden to, to move off that, that conversation. So uh, I was going to ask you if, given that Joe Biden is such a well-known figure, there, it seems like not much mud could stick to him at this point that the public doesn't already know about, but do you share that view? The, the research that I talked about tested a lot of the just traditional messages. He's been in Washington a long, uh, long time. He's part of the corrupt establishment. He uh, has uh, two close ties to China. He, he's moving left with the Democratic Party. He wants to take over your health care. The, the, they don't have to be very creative. Those are um, all traditional Republican messages. Uh, they, they work fine, but they're not being delivered uh, because Trump has the focus on him. Uh, and, um, and and so no one's learning very much about Joe Biden. But is there that much more to be known about Joe Biden? Well, I think um, right now he's getting away with uh, seeming to be moderate. Uh, that is, what what is not known is that he has all of the same policy positions <laughs> as the leftward-moving Democratic Party, uh, and uh, that... Um, some of those have uh, downsides that the Republicans can point out. Uh, he also has he also is known to have experience, but hasn't had the you know the negative aspects of experience pointed out. So I don't think it's the case that they need to find huge some huge new issue. It's just that they need to get out the traditional Republican message to bring out 
uh, to bring over traditional Republican voters. And right now, what those voters are hearing is Donald Trump is an ineffective uh, extremist, and Joe Biden, you know, is a, a old comfortable politician that they have, people are comfortable with. Turning to the senators, is it time for some of these Republicans to jump off the Donald Trump ship? Absolutely. Um, You know, it it is time for uh, Republican members of Congress and senators to uh, differentiate themselves from Trump. Uh, Many of them are going to need a lot of voters who don't support Donald Trump or a lot of Biden voters. Uh, And so far, they're doing almost nothing to win uh, those voters' uh, support. Um, You know, there are uh, are things happening in Congress that allow people to differentiate themselves. We saw three Republican members, including Fred Upson, vote for the police reform bill uh, in the House. Um, But that's not very many, uh, considering the number that are uh, threatened in the election. Um, And in the Senate, there's, you know, these Republican senators are not doing anything to differentiate themselves. There's also evidence that they could, you know, they don't have to talk very negatively about Trump. They could just, you know, be a little bit differentiating themselves and Trump would do the rest. (laughs) He would uh, attack them or make them seem like they weren't fully on his side. And that would also help uh, those Republican members, uh, but um, be willing or able to separate themselves. Well, on that note, we will check in with you on the, the July 4th weekend. Thank you so much, uh, Matt Grossman, as ever, for being on City Pulse. Thank you. This is City Pulse on the air on 89FM, The Impact. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you again next Sunday, same time, same station. Thanks to Cole Tunningley for producing this week's show. Till next week, for City Pulse, I'm Burl Schwartz.